Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of Skylark 3 by E.E. E. Doc Smith. Volume 2, Chapter 3. Skylark 2 sets out. Say, Mart, I just got conscious. It never occurred to me until just now, as Dunark left, that I'm as good an instrument maker as Dunark is. The same one, in fact. And I've got a hunch. You know that needle on Duquesne hasn't been working for quite a while? I don't believe it's out of commission at all. I think he's gone somewhere, so far away it can't read him. I'm going to rehouse it and rejule it and find out where he is. An excellent idea. He has even you worrying. And as for myself... Worrying. That bird is simply pulling my cork. I'm so scared he'll get dotty that I'm running around in circles butting myself in the small of the back. He's got a hen on. You could bet your shirt on that. What gravels me is he's aiming at the girls, not at us or the job. I should say that someone had aimed at you fairly accurately, judging by the number of bullets stopped lately by the Arnak armor of yours. I wish I could take some of the strain, but they are centering all their attacks upon you. Yeah, I can't stick my nose outside of our yard without somebody throwing lead at it. It's funny, too. You're more important to the power plant than I am. You should know why. They're not afraid of me. While my spirit is willing enough, it was your skill and rapidity with a pistol that frustrated four attempts at abduction in as many days. It is positively uncanny the way you explode into action. With all my practice, I didn't even have my pistol out yesterday until it was all over. And besides Prescott's guards, we had four policemen with us, detailed to guard us, because of the number of gunmen you had to kill before that. It isn't practice so much, Mart. It's a gift. I've always been fast. I react automatically. You think first. That's why you're slow. Those cops were funny. They didn't know what it was all about until it was all over. All but calling the wagon. That was the worst one yet. One of their slugs stuck directly in front of my left eye. It was kind of funny at that, seeing it splash, and I thought I was inside a boiler in a riveting shop when those machine guns cut loose. It was hectic all right while it lasted. But one thing I'll tell the attentive world. We're not doing all the worrying. Very few, if any, of the gangsters they send after us are getting back. Wonder what they think when they shoot at us and we don't drop. But I'm afraid I'm beginning to crack, Mart, Seaton went on, voice becoming grimly earnest. I don't like anything about this whole mess. I don't like all four of us wearing armor all the time. I don't like living constantly under guard. I don't like all this killing and this constant menace of losing Dorothy. If I let her out of my sight for five seconds, it drives me crazy. To tell you the real truth, I'm afraid they'll figure out something that'll work. I could grab off two women or kill two men if they had armor and guns enough to stock a war. I believe that Duquesne could too, and the rest of that bunch aren't imbeciles either by any means. I won't feel safe until all four of us are in the Skylark, and a long way from here. Sure glad we're pulling out. I don't intend to come back until I get a good line on Duquesne. He's the bird I'm going to get and get right. And when I get him, I'll tell the cockeyed world he'll stay got. There won't be any two atoms of his entire carcass left at the same township. And I meant that promise when I gave it to him. Yes, he realizes that fully. He knows that it is now definitely either his life or our own, and he is really dangerous. When he took steel over and opened war upon us, he did it with his eyes opened, and with his ideas, he must have a monopoly of X or nothing. He knows the only possible way of getting it. However, both you and I know that he would not let either of us live, even if we surrendered. You said it, boy. But that guy's going to find he started something. Unless I get paralysis of the intentions. Well, how about turning up a few RPM? We don't want to keep Dunark waiting too long. There's very little to do beyond installing the new instruments. That is nearly done. We can finish pumping out the compass and route. You have already installed every weapon of offense and defense known to either earthly or osnomium warfare, including those ray generators and screens you moan so about not having during the battle over Condal. 
I believe we have on board every article for which either of us has been able to imagine even the slightest use. Yes, we got her so full of plunder that there's hardly room left for quarters. You ain't figuring on taking anybody but Shiro along, are you? No, I suppose there is no real necessity for taking even him. But he wants very much to go with us and prove himself useful. I'll say he's useful. None of us really enjoys polishing brass or washing dishes. Besides, he's one star cook and an A1 housekeeper. The installation of the new instruments was soon completed, and while Dorothy and Margaret made last-minute preparations for departure, the men called a meeting of the managing directors and department heads of the Seton Crane Company engineers. The chiefs gave brief reports in turn. Units number one and two of the immense new central superpower plant were in continuous operation. Number three was almost ready to cut in. Number four was being rushed to completion. Number five was well underway. The research laboratory was keeping well up on its problems. Troubles were less than had been anticipated. Financially, it was a gold mine. With no expense for boilers or fuel, and thus with a relatively small investment in plant and a very small operating cost, they were selling power at one-sixth of the prevailing rates, and still profits were almost paying for all new construction. With the completion of number five, rates would be reduced still further. In short, Dad, everything's going slick, remarked Seaton to Mr. Vainman after the others had gone. Yes, your plan of getting the best men possible, paying them well and giving them complete authority and sole responsibility has worked to perfection. I have never seen an undertaking of such size go forward so smoothly and with such fine cooperation. That's the way we wanted it. We handpicked the directors and put it up to you strictly. You did the same to the managers. Everybody knows that his end is up to him and him alone, so he digs in. However, Dick, while everything at the works is so fine, what is this other thing going to break? We've won all the way so far, but I'm afraid something's about due. That's the big reason I want to get Dot away for a while. You know what they're up to? Too well, the older man answered. Dottie or Mrs. Crane or both. Her mother... She is telling her goodbye now, and I agree that the danger here is greater than out there. Danger? Out there? With the old can fixed the way she is now? Dot's a lot safer than you are in bed. Your house might fall down and you know. You're probably right, son. I know you, and I know Martin Crane. Together and in the skylock, I believe you're invincible. All set, Dick? asked Dorothy, appearing in the doorway. All set. You've got the dope for Prescott and everybody, Dad. We may be back in six months, or we may see something to investigate and be gone a year or so. Don't begin to lose any sleep until after we've been out for, say, well, three years. We'll make it a point to be back by then. Farewells were said. The party embarked, and the Skylark too shot upward. Seaton flipped a phone set over his head and spoke. Dunark! Coming out! Heading directly for X. No, better stay quite a ways off to one side when we get going good. Yeah, I'm accelerating 26.000. Yes, I'll call you now and then until the radio waves get lost to check the course with you. After that, keep on the last course. Reverse at the calculated distance, and by the time we're pretty well slowed down, we'll feel around for each other with the compasses and go in together. Right? Uh-huh. Fine. So long. In order that the two vessels should keep reasonably close together, it had been agreed that each should be held at an acceleration of exactly 26 feet per second, positive and negative. This figure represented a compromise between the gravitational forces of the two worlds upon which the different parties lived. While considerably less than the acceleration of gravitation at the surface of the Earth, the terrestrials could readily accustom themselves to it, and it was not much greater than that of Osnome to hamper seriously the activities of green people. Well clear of the Earth's influence, Seaton assured himself that everything was functioning properly, then stretched to his full height, wreathed his arms over his head, and heaved a deep sigh of relief. Folks, this is the first time I've felt right since we got out of this old bottle. 
I feel so good a cat could walk up to me and scratch me right in the eye, and I wouldn't even scratch back. Yowp! I'm a wild Siberian catamount, and this is my night to howl. Hooey! Dorothy laughed, a gay, lilting carol. Haven't I always told you he had cat blood on him, Peggy? Just like all tomcats. Every once in a while, he has to stretch his claws and yowl. Go ahead, Dickie. I like it. This is the first uproar you've made in weeks. Maybe I'll join in. It most certainly is a relief to get this load off our minds. I could do a ladylike little yowling myself, Margaret said, and Crane, lying completely at ease, a thin spiral of smoke curling upward from his cigarette, nodded agreement. Dick's yowling is quite expressive at times. All of us feel the same way, but some of us are unable to express ourselves quite so vividly. However, it is past bedtime, and we should organize our crew. Shall we do it as we did before? No, that's not necessary. Everything's automatic. The bar is held parallel to the guiding compass, and signal bells ring whenever any of the instruments show a trace of abnormal behavior. Don't forget that there is at least one meter registering and recording every factor of our flight. With this control system, we can't get into any such jam as we did with the last trip. Surely you're not suggesting we run all night with no one at the controls. I'm suggesting exactly that. A man camping at his board is painting the lily and gilding fine gold. Awake or asleep, nobody need to be closer than it is necessary to hear a bell if one should ring. And you can hear them all over the ship. Furthermore, I'll bet a hat we don't hear a signal for a week. Simply as an added precaution, though, I've run lines so that any time one of these signals lets go, it sounds a buzzer on the head of our beds, so I'm automatically taking the night shift. Remember, Mart, these instruments are thousands of times as sensitive as the keenest human senses. They'll spot trouble long before we could, even if we were looking right at it. Of course, you understand these instruments much better than I do, as yet. If you trust them, I'm perfectly willing to do the same. Good night. Seaton sat down, and Dorothy nestled beside him, her head snuggled into the curve of his shoulder. Sleepy cuddle pup? Heavens no! I couldn't go to sleep now, lover, could you? Not at all. What's the use? His arm tightened around her. Apparently motionless to his passengers, the cruiser bored serenely on into space, with ever-mounting velocity. There was not the faintest sound, not the slightest vibration, only the peculiar violet glow surrounding the shining copper cylinder and its massive universal bearing gave any indication of the thousands of kilowatts being generated in the mighty intra-atomic power plant. Seaton studied it thoughtfully. If that violet aura and copper bar were just a little different in shade and tone of color, they'd be just like your eyes and hair, he remarked finally. Oh, Dick, you burn me up, she retorted, her entrancing low chuckle bubbling through her words. You do say the weirdest things sometimes. Possibly they would, and if the moon were made of different stuff than it is, it would be a different color, and it might be green cheese too. What say we go over and look at the stars? Don't move a millimeter. You're a drive fit right where you are. I'll get you any stars you want and bring them right here to you. What constellation would you like? I'll get you the Southern Cross. We'd never see it in Washington. No, I want something familiar. The Pleiades or the Big Dipper. No, get me Canis Major. We're serious. Brightest jewel in the diadem of the firmament. Hold sway, she quoted. There. Thought I'd forgotten all the astronomy you ever taught me, didn't you? Think you can find it? Sure. Declination about minus twenties, I remember and right ascension between six and seven hours. Let's see, where would that be from our course? He thought for a moment, manipulated several levers and dials, snapped off the lights, and swung number one exterior visiplate around directly before their eyes. Oh, oh, Dick, it's magnificent, she exclaimed. It's stupendous. It seems as though we were right out there in space itself, not in here at all. It's just... It's just too perfectly darn wonderful. Although neither of them was unacquainted with interstellar space, it presents a spectacle that never fails to awe, 
even the most seasoned observer. And no human being had ever before viewed the wonders of space from such a coin of vantage. Thus the two fell silent and awed as they gazed out into the abysmal depths of interstellar void. The darkness of earthly night is ameliorated by light rays scattered by the atmosphere. The stars twinkle and scintillate, their light is diffused, because of the same medium. But here, what a contrast! They saw the utter absolute darkness of the complete absence of all light, and upon that indescribable blackness they beheld superimposed the almost unbearable brilliance of enormous suns concentrated into mathematical points, dimensionless. Sirius blazed in blue-white splendor, dominating the lesser members of his constellation. A minute but intensely brilliant diamond upon a field of velvet black, his refulgence unmarred by any trace of scintillation or distortion. A Seton slowly shifted the field of vision, angling toward and across the celestial equator and the ecliptic. They beheld, in turn, mighty Rigel, the belt, headed by the dazzling brilliant white Delta Orion, red Betelgeuse, storied Aldebaran, the friend of mariners, and astronomically constant Pleiades. Seton's arm contracted, swinging Dorothy into his embrace, their lips met and held. Isn't it wonderful, lover, she murmured, to be out here in space this way, together, away from all our troubles and worries? I'm so happy. It's all of that and more, sweetheart mine. I almost died every time they shot at you. Suppose your armor cracked or something. I wouldn't want to go on living. I'd just naturally die. Glad you didn't. I'm twice as glad they didn't succeed in grabbing you away from me. His jaw set rigidly. His gray eyes became hard as tempered drills. Blackie Duquesne has something coming to him. So far, I've always paid my debts. And I'm going to settle with him in full. Sorry, that was an awfully quick change of subject, he continued, voice changing instantly into a lighter vein. But that's one penalty of being human. We can't live in high altitudes all our lives. If we could, there'd be no thrill in ascending them so often. After a moment, she eyed him shrewdly and continued. You've got something on your mind besides that tangled mop of hair, big boy. Come on. Tell it to Redtop. Oh, nothing much. Come on, fess up. It's good for the soul. You can't fool your own wife, big guy. I know your little winning ways too well. Let me finish, woman. I was about to bare my soul. To resume, nothing much to go on but a hunch. But I think Duquesne somewhere out here in the great open spaces, where men are sometimes schemers as well as men. And if so, I'm after him. Foot, horse, and marines. With that object compass? Yeah, you see, I built that thing myself, and I know darn well it isn't out of order. It's still on him. Just doesn't indicate. Ergo, he's too far away to reach. And with his weight, I could find him anywhere, up to about one and a half light years. If he wants to go that far away from home, where is his logical destination? Can't be anywhere but Osnome, since that's the only place we stop for any length of time. The only place where he could have learned anything. He's learned something, or found something useful to him there, just like we did. That is certain, since he's not the type of man to do anything without a purpose. Uncle Dudley is on his tail, and we'll be able to locate him pretty soon. When will you get that new compass case exhausted to a skillionth of a willimeter, or something, or whatever it is? I thought Dunark said it took 500 hours of pumping to get it where he wanted it. It did him, but while the osnomiums are wonders at some things, they're not so hot at others. You see, I've got three pumps on that job in series. In less than 50 hours, that case will be as empty as a flapper's skull. Just to make sure of cleaning up the last infinitesimal traces, though, I'm going to flash a getter charge of tantalum in it. After that, the atmosphere in that case will be, well, tenuous. Take my word for it. I'll have to. Most of that contribution to science being over my head, like a circus tent. What say we let Skylark drift by herself for a while, and catch us some of nature's sweet restorer? Chapter 4 
the zone of force is tested. Seaton strode into the control room with a small oblong box in his hand. Crane was seated at the desk, poring over an abstruse mathematical treatise in the journal Science. Margaret was working upon a bit of embroidery. Dorothy, seated upon a cushion on the floor with one foot tucked under her, was reading, her hand straying from time to time to a box of chocolates conveniently nearby. Well, this is a peaceful, home-like scene. Too bad to bust it up. Just finished sealing off and flashing out this case, Mart. Gonna see if she'll read. Wanna take a look? He placed the compass upon the plain table so that its final bearing could be read upon the master circles controlled by the gyroscopes, then simultaneously started his stopwatch and pressed the button which caused a minute couple to be applied to the needle. Instantly the needle began to revolve, and for many minutes there was no apparent change in its motion in either the primary or secondary bearings. Do you suppose it's out of order after all? asked Crane regretfully. I still don't think so, Seaton pondered. You see, they weren't designed to indicate such distances on such small objects as men. So I threw a million ohms in series with the impulse. That cuts down the free rotation to less than half an hour and increases the sensitivity to the limit. There. Yes, I think it's settling down. It must be on him still. Finally, the ultra-sensitive needle came to rest. When it had done so, Seaton calculated the distance, read the direction, and made a reading upon Osnome. He's there, all right. Well, the bearings agree, and the distances checked it within a light year, which is as close as we can hope to check on as small a mass as a man. Well, that's that. Nothing to do about it until after we get there. One thing's for sure, though, Mart. We're not coming straight back home from X. No, an investigation is indicated. Well, that puts me out of a job. What am I going to do? Don't want to study like you. Can't crochet like Peg. Darn if I'll sit cross-legged on a pillow and eat candy like that Titian blonde over there on the floor. I know. I'll build me a mechanical educator and teach Shiro to talk English instead of that mess of a language he indulges in. How'd that be, Mart? Don't do it, put in Dorothy positively. He's just too perfect the way he is. Especially, don't do it if he talked the way you do. Or could you teach him to talk the way you write? Oh, that's a dirty dig. However, Mrs. Seaton, I'm able and willing to defend my customary mode of speech. You realize that the spoken word is ephemeral, whereas the thought, whose nuances have once been expressed in imperishable print, is not subject to revision. Its crudities can never be remodeled into more subtle and more gracious shading. He broke off as Dorothy in one lithe motion rose and hurled her pillow at his head. Choke him, somebody! Perhaps you had better build it, Dick, after all. I believe he would like it, actually, Dick. He is trying hard to learn English, and the continuous use of a dictionary is undoubtedly a nuisance to him. Well, I'll ask him. Shiro? You have cause, sir. Shiro entered the room from his galley with his unfailing bow. Yes, how'd you like to learn to talk English like Crane here does, without taking lessons? Shiro smiled doubtfully, unable to take such a thought seriously. Yes, it can be done, Crane assured him. Dr. Seaton can build a machine that'll teach you all at once, if you'd like. I like, sir, enormously, yes. I years study in the poor, but honorable English, extraordinary difference from Nipponese. No can do. Dictionary useful, but... He flipped pages dexterously. Extremely cumbrous. If Honorable Seaton can do, shall be extreme gratification. He bowed again and smiled and went out. I'll do just that little thing, then. So long, folks. I'm going up to the shop. Day after day, the Skylark plunged through the vast emptiness of the interstellar reaches, and at the end of each second she was traveling exactly 26 feet per second faster than she had been in its beginning. And as day after day passed, her velocity mounted into figures which became meaningless, even when expressed in the thousands of miles per second. Still, she seemed stationary to her occupants, 
and only difference from a vessel motionless upon the surface of the earth, and that objects in her hull had lost three sixteenths of their normal weight. Acceleration, too, had its effect. Only the rapidity with which the closer suns and their planets were passing gave any indication of the frightful speed at which they were being hurtled along by the inconceivable power of that disintegrating copper bar. When the vessel was nearly halfway to X, the bar was reversed in order to change the sign of their acceleration. The hollow sphere spun through an angle of 180 degrees around the motionless cage which housed the enormous gyroscopes. Still, apparently motionless and exactly as she had been before, the Skylark was now actually traveling in a direction which seemed down and with a velocity which was being constantly decreased by the amount of their negative acceleration. A few days after the bar had been reversed, Seaton announced that the mechanical educator was complete and brought it into the control room. Its appearance was not unlike that of a large radio set, but it was infinitely more complex. It possessed numerous tubes, kitten lamps, and photoelectric cells, as well as many coils of peculiar design. There were dozens of dials and knobs and a multiple set of head harnesses. How could a thing like that possibly work as it does? asked Crane. I know it does work, but I could scarcely believe it, even after it had educated me. That one doesn't look anything like the one Dunark used, Dick. Why is that? Dorothy objected. I'll answer you first, Dot. This is an improved model. It has quite a few gadgets of my own in it. Now, Mart, as to how it works, it isn't so funny after you understand it. It's a lot like a radio in that respect. It operates on a band of frequencies lying between the longest light and heat waves and the shortest radio waves. This thing is the generator of those waves and a very heavy power amplifier. The headsets are stereoscopic transmitters taking or receiving a three-dimensional view. Nearly all matter is transparent to those waves, for example, bone and hair and so on. However, cerebin, a cerebroside peculiar to the thinking structure of the brain, is opaque to them. Dunark, not knowing chemistry, didn't know why the educator worked or what it worked on. He found out by experiment that it worked, just as we found out about electricity. This three-dimensional model or view, or whatever you want to call it, is converted into electricity in the headsets, and the resulting modulated wave goes back to the educator. There, it's heterodyned with another wave. The secret frequency was found after thousands of trials, and is, I believe, the exact frequency existing in the optic nerves themselves, and sent to the receiving headset. Modulated as it is, and producing a three-dimensional picture, after rectification of the receiver, it reproduces exactly what has been viewed. If due allowance has been made for the size and configuration of the different brains involved in the transfer, you remember a sort of flash, a sensation of seeing something when the educator worked on you? Well, you did see that, just as though it had been transmitted to the brain by the optic nerve, but everything came at once, so the impression of sight was confused. The result in the brain, however, was clear and permanent. The only drawback is, is you don't have the visual memory of what you learned, and that sometimes makes it hard to use your knowledge. You don't know whether you know anything about a certain subject or not until after you go digging around in your brain looking for it. I see, said Crane, and Dorothy, the irrepressible, put in. Just as clear as so much mud. What are the improvements you added to the original design? Well, you see, I had a big advantage in knowing that Cerebin, was the substance involved, and with that knowledge, I could carry matters considerably farther than Dunark could in his original model. I can transfer the thoughts of somebody else to a third party or to a record. Dunark's machine couldn't work against resistance. If the subject wasn't willing to give up his thoughts, he couldn't get them. This one can take them away by force. In fact, by increasing plate and grid voltages in the amplifier, I can pretty much burn out a man's brain. Yesterday I was playing with it, transferring a section of my own brain to a magnetized tape, for a permanent record, you know, and found out that above certain rather low voltages it became a form of torture that would make the best efforts of the old Inquisition seem like a petting party. Did you succeed in the transfer? Crane was intensely interested. Sure. Push the button for Shiro, and we'll start something.
Put your head against this screen, he directed when Shiro had come in, smiling and bowing as usual. I've got to caliper your brains to do a good job here. The calipering done, he adjusted various dials and clamped the electrodes over his own head and over the heads of Crane and Shiro. Want to learn Japanese while we're at it, Mart? I'm going to. Yes, please. I tried to learn it while I was in Japan, but it was altogether too difficult to be worthwhile. Seaton threw a switch, opened it, and depressed two more, opened them, and threw off the power. All set, he reported crisply, and he barked a series of explosive syllables at Shiro, ending upon a rising note. Yes, sir, answered the Japanese. You speak Nipponese as though you had never spoken any other tongue. I am very grateful to you, sir, that I may now discard my dictionary. How about you two girls? Anything you want to learn in a hurry? Not me, declared Dorothy emphatically. That machine is too darn weird to suit me. Besides, if I knew as much about science as you do, we'd probably start fighting about it. I don't believe I care to, began Margaret. She was interrupted by the penetrating sound of an alarm bell. That's a new note, exclaimed Seaton. Never heard that one before. He stood in surprise at the board, where a brilliant purple light was flashing slowly. Great cats! That's a purely osnomium war gadget. Kind of a battleship detector. Shows that there's a boatload of bad news around here somewhere. Grab the visiplates, quick, folks, as he rang Shiro's bell. I'll take visiplate area one, dead ahead. Mart, take two. Dot, three. Peg, four. Shiro, you can have five. And look sharp. Nothing in front. Do you see anything? Any of you? None of them could discover anything amiss, but the purple light continued to flash and the bell to ring. Seaton cut off the bell. We're almost to X, he thought out loud. Can't be more than a million miles or so, and we're almost stopped. I wonder if somebody's there ahead of us. Maybe Dunark is doing this. I'll call him and see. He threw a switch and said one word. Dunark? Here, came the voice of the code effects of the speaker. Are you generating? No, just called to see if you were. What do you make of it? Nothing as yet. Better close up. Yeah, edge over this way. I'll come over to meet you. Leave your negative as it is. We'll be stopped directly. Whatever it is, it's dead ahead. It's a long ways off yet, but we'd better get organized. Wouldn't talk much either. They may intercept our wave, narrow as it is. Better yet, shut off your radio entirely. When we get close enough together, we'll use the hand language. You may not know that you know it, but you do. Turn your heaviest searchlight toward me. I'll do the same. There was a click as Dunark's power was shut off abruptly, and Seaton grinned as he cut his own. That's right, folks. In Asnomian battles, we always used a sign language when we couldn't hear anything, and that was most of the time. I know it as well as I know English, now that I'm reminded of the fact. He shifted his course to intercept the Asnomian vessel. After a time, the watchers picked out a minute point of light moving comparatively rapidly against the stars, and they knew that it had to be the searchlight of the Kondal. Soon the two vessels were almost side by side, moving cautiously forward, and Seaton set up a 60-inch parabolic reflector, focused upon a coil. As they went on, the purple light continued to flash more and more rapidly, but still nothing was to be seen. Take number six visiplate, will you, Mart? It's telescopic equivalent to a 20-inch refractor. I'll tell you where to look in a minute. This reflector increases the power of the regular indicator. He's studying meters and adjusted dials. Set on 19 hours, 43 minutes, and 271 degrees. He's too far away yet to read exactly, but that'll put him in the field of vision. Is this radiation harmful? Asked Margaret. Not yet. It's too weak. Pretty soon we may be able to feel it, though. Then I'll throw out a screen against it. When it's strong enough, it's pretty deadly stuff. Do you see anything, Mart? I see something, but it's very indistinct. It's moving in sharper now. Yes, it's a spaceship. Shaped like a 
dirigible airship. Do you see it yet, Dunark? Seaton signaled. I've just sighted it. Ready to attack? I am not. I'm going to run. Let's go. And go fast. Dunark signaled violently, and Seaton shook his head time after time stubbornly. Is there a difficulty? asked Crane. Yeah, he wants to go jump on it, but I'm not looking for trouble with any such craft as that. It must be a thousand feet long, and it's not terrestrial, it's not osnomium. I say beat it while we're all in one piece. How about it? Absolutely, concurred Crane and both the women. The bar was reversed and the Skylark leapt away. The Condal followed, although the observers could see that Dunark was raging. Seaton swung number one visiplate around, looked once, and switched on the radio. Well, Dunark, he said grimly, you get your wish. That bird is coming out with at least twice the acceleration we can get with both motors on full. He saw us all the time, and he was waiting for us. Go then. You can get a higher acceleration than we can. We'll hold him as long as possible. I would, if it would do any good, but it won't. He's so much faster than we are, he could catch us anyway if he wanted to, no matter how much of a start we had. And it looks now as though he wanted us. Two of us stand a much better chance than one of licking him if he's looking for trouble. Spread out about a mile or two and pretend this is all the speed we've got. What do we give him first? Give him everything at once. Raise six, seven, eight, nine, and ten. Crane with Seaton began making contacts. Rapidly, but with precision. Heat wave 27, induction 58, oscillation, everything under 0.063. All the explosive copper we can get in, right? Right. And if worst comes to worst, remember the zone of force. Let him shoot first, because he may be peachable, but it doesn't look like other branches to me. You have both your screens out. Yes. Mart, you might take number two visiplate and work the guns. I'll handle the rest of this stuff. Better strap yourselves in solid, folks. This may develop into a kind of rough party by the looks of things right now. As he spoke, the pyrotechnic display enveloped the entire ship as radiation from the foreign vessel struck the other neutralizing screen and dissipated its force harmlessly in the ether. Instantly, Seaton threw on the full power of his refrigerating system and shot in the master switch that actuated the complex offensive armament of his dreadnought of the skies. An intense, livid, violet glow hid completely main and auxiliary power bars, and long flashes leapt between metallic objects in all parts of the vessel. Passengers felt each hair striving to stand on end as the very air became more and more highly charged, and this was but the slight corona loss of the frightful stream of destruction being hurled at the other space cruiser, now scarcely a mile away. Seaton stared into number one visiplate, manipulating levers and dials as he drove the Skylark hither and yon, dodging frantically. All the while, the automatic focusing devices remained centered upon the enemy, and the enormous generators continued to pour forth their deadly frequencies. The bars glowed more fiercely, as they were advanced to full working load. The stranger was one blaze of incandescent ionization, but she still fought on, and Seaton noticed that the pyrometers recording the temperature of the shell were mounting rapidly, in spite of the refrigeration. Donark, put everything you've got upon one spot, right at the end of his nose. As the first shell struck the mark, Seaton concentrated every force at his command upon the designated point. The air in the Skylark crackled and hissed, and intense violet flames leapt from the bars as they were driven almost to the point of disruption. From the forward end of the strange craft there erupted prominence after prominence of searing, unbearable flame as the terrific charges of explosive copper struck the mark and exploded, liberating instantly their millions upon millions of kilowatt-hours of intraatomic energy. Each prominence enveloped all three of the fighting vessels and extended for hundreds of miles out into space. 
but still the enemy warship continued to hurl forth solid and vibratory destruction. A brilliant orange light flared upon the panel, and Seaton gasped as he swung his visiplate upon his defenses, which he had supposed were impregnable. His outer screen was already down, although its mighty copper generator was exerting its utmost power. Black areas had already appeared and were spreading rapidly, where there should have been only incandescent radiance, and the inner screen was even now radiating far into the ultraviolet and was certainly doomed. Knowing as he did the stupendous power driving those screens, he knew that there were superhuman and inconceivable forces being directed against them, and his right hand flashed to the switch controlling the zone of force. Fast as he was, much happened in the mere moment that passed before his flying hand could close on the switch. In the last infinitesimal instant of time before the zone closed in, a gaping black hole appeared in the incandescence of the inner screen, and a small portion of a ray of energy so stupendous as to be palpable struck like a tangible projectile the exposed flank of the Skylark. Instantly, the refractory Aranac turned an intense, dazzling white, and more than a foot of the 48-inch skin of the vessel melted away, like snow before an oxyacetylene flame, melting and flying away in molten globes and sparkling gases. The refrigerating coils lining the hull were of no avail against the concentrated energy of that titanic thrust. As Seaton shut off his power, intense darkness and utter silence closed in, and he snapped down the lights. Seaton leapt for the generators, his eyes almost emitting sparks. He had forgotten the efforts of the zone of force, however, and only sprawled grotesquely in the air until he floated within reach of a line. Felt everything, Dick, Crane snapped as Seaton bent over one of the bars. What are you going to do? I'm going to put as heavy bars in these ray generators as they'll stand and go out and get that bird. We can't lick him with osnomium rays or with our explosive copper, but I can carve that sausage into slices with a zone of force. I'm going to do that. Steady, old man. Take it easy. I see your point, but remember, you must release the zone of force before you can use that weapon. Furthermore, you must discover his exact location and you must get close enough to him to use the zone as a weapon, all without its protection. Can those ray screens be made sufficiently powerful to withstand the beam they employed last, even for a second? Uh, I never thought of that, Mart. Seaton replied, fire dying out of his eyes. wonder how long the battle lasted. Eight and two-tenths seconds, from the first to the last, but they had had that heavy ray in action only a fraction of one second. When you cut in the zone of force, either they underestimated our strength at first, or it required about eight seconds to tune in their heavy generators. Probably the former. We've got to do something, man. We can't just sit here and twiddle our thumbs. And why not? That course seems eminently wise and proper. In fact, at the present time, thumb-twiddling is distinctly indicated. Bah! You're full of little red ants, Mart. We can't do a thing with that zone on. And you say just sit here? Suppose they know all about that zone of force. Suppose they can crack it. Suppose they ram us. I shall take your objections in order. Crane had lit a cigarette and was smoking meditatively. First, they may or may not know about it. At present, that point is rather immaterial. Second, whether or not they know about it, it's almost a certainty they can't crack it. It's been up for more than three minutes, and they have undoubtedly concentrated everything possible upon us during that time, and it's still standing. I really expected it to go down in the first few seconds, but now that it's held so long, in all probability it will continue to hold indefinitely. Third, they most certainly will not ram us, for several reasons. They probably have encountered few, if any, foreign vessels able to withstand against them for a minute, and they will act accordingly. Then, too, it is probably safe to assume that their vessel is damaged, to some slight extent at least, for I don't believe that any possible armament could withstand the forces you directed against them, and escape entirely unscathed. Finally, if they did ram us, then what would happen? Would we feel the shock? 
That barrier in the ether seems impervious, and if so, it could not transmit a blow. I don't see exactly how it could affect the ship dealing the blow. You're the one who works out new problems in unexplored mathematics. Sometime you should take a few months off and work this one out. Yes, it would take too long, though, I guess. But you're right. He can't hurt us. Well, that's using the old bean mart. I was going to go off half cock. I was going to go off half cocked again, darn it. Seaton noticed that Dorothy's face was white and that she was fighting for self-control. Drawing himself over to her, he picked her up on a tight embrace. Come on, cheer up, Red. This man's war ain't even started yet. Not started? What do you mean? Haven't you and Mart just been admitting to each other that you can't do anything? Does that mean that we're beaten? Us? Beaten? Where'd you get that from? Not on your sweet young life. The surprise on his face was so manifest that she recovered instantly. We just dug a hole and pulled the hole in after us, that's all. When we get everything doped out to suit us, we'll snap out of it, and that bird will think he's been petting a wildcat. Mart, you're the thinking end of this partnership, he continued thoughtfully. You've got the analytical mind and the judicial disposition and can think circles around me. From what little you've seen of these folks, tell me, who, what, and where are they? I'm getting the germ of an idea, and maybe we can make it work. I'll try it. They are, of course, neither from Earth nor Osnome. It's also evident that they've solved the secret of intraatomic energy. Their vessels are not propelled as ours are. They have so perfected that force that it acts upon every particle of the structure and its contents. How do you figure that? blurted Seaton. Because of the acceleration they can stand. Nothing, even semi-human, and probably nothing living, could endure it otherwise. You see? Oh, yeah. Never thought of that. Furthermore, they're far from home, for if they were anywhere nearby, the Osnomiums would know of them, particularly since it is evident from the size of the vessel that it is not a recent development with them as it is with us. Since the green system is so close to the center of the galaxy, it seems reasonable as a working hypothesis to assume that they are from some system far from the center, perhaps close to the outer edge. They are very evidently of a high degree of intelligence. They are also highly treacherous and merciless. Why is that? asked Dorothy, who was listening eagerly. I deduced those characteristics from their unprovoked attack upon peaceful ships vastly smaller and supposedly of inferior armament. And also from the nature of that attack, this vessel is probably a scout or an exploration ship, since it seems to be alone. It is not altogether beyond the bounds of reason to imagine it upon a voyage of discovery in search of new planets to be subjugated and colonized. Well, that's a sweet picture of our future neighbors, but I guess you're hitting the old nail on the head at that. If these deductions are anywhere nearly correct, they are terrible neighbors. For my next point, are we justified in assuming that they do or do not know about the zone of force? That's a hard one. Knowing what they evidently do know, it's hard to see how they could have missed it. And yet, if they had known about it for a long time, wouldn't they be able to get through it? Of course, it may be a real and total barrier in the ether. In that case, they'd know that they couldn't do a thing as long as we keep it on. Take your choice, but I believe that they know about it, and know more than we do, that it is a total barrier set up in the ether. I agree with you, and we shall proceed upon that assumption. They know, then, that neither they nor we can do anything as long as they maintain the zone, and that is a stalemate. They also know that it takes an enormous amount of power to keep the zone in place. Now we have gone as far as we can go upon the meager data we have considerably farther than we have really justified in going. We must now try to come to some conclusion concerning their present activities. If our ideas as to their natures are even approximately correct, and their waiting, probably, fairly close at hand, until we shall be compelled to release the zone, no matter how long that period of waiting shall be. They, of course, know from our small size that we cannot carry enough copper to maintain it indefinitely, as they could, does that sound reasonable? I check you to nineteen decimal places, Mart, 
and from your ideas, I'm getting sure and sure that we can pull their corks. I can get into action in a hurry when I have to, and my idea now is to wait until they relax a trifle, and then slip a fast one over on them. One more bubble out of the old think tank, and I'll let you off for the day. At what time will their vigilance be at this lowest ebb? That's a poser, I'll admit, but the answer to that may answer everything. The first shot, of course, will be the best chance we'll ever have. Yes, we should succeed in the first attempt. We have very little information to guide us in answering that question. He studied the problem for many minutes before he resumed. I should say that for a time they would keep all their rays and other weapons in action against the Zenon force, expecting us to release it immediately. Then knowing that they were wasting power uselessly, they would cease attacking, but would be very watchful with every eye fastened upon us and with every weapon ready for instant use. After this period of vigilance, regular ship routine would be resumed. Half the force probably would go off duty, for if they are even remotely like any organic beings with which we're familiar, they require sleep, or the equivalent of it. The men on duty, the normal force, that is, would be doubly careful for a time. Then habit will reassert itself if we've done nothing to create suspicion, and their watchfulness will relax to the point of ordinary careful observation. Toward the end of their watch, because of the strain of the battle and because of the unusually long period of duty, they will become careless, and their vigilance will be considerably below normal. But the exact time of all those things depends entirely upon their conception of time, concerning which we have no information whatever, though it is purely a speculation based upon earthly and osnomian experience. I should say that after twelve or thirteen hours would come the time for us to make the attack. It's good enough for me. Fine, Mark, and thanks. You've probably saved the lives of the party. We will now sleep for 11 or 12 hours. <laughs>